Mistakes are easily made. Mistakes are often seemingly unnoticed and small. At least I think we can convince ourselves of that fact. Or at least think that our sin is unnoticed. But mistakes can also be gigantic and impossible to hide and rectify. Let's take this uh, submarine for a fact. This is Spain's supposedly state-of-the-art submarine, the S-81 Isaac Perel. Now, this submarine was commissioned in 2013, ready to be sent out, as well as four other new submarines for the Spanish Navy. There was just one small little problem about the design, that once submerged, it would never be able to resurface again. Yeah, it's a small little feature in a sub, right? So it's an unnoticed flaw that a design that it was 75 to 100 tons overweight. Small little thing, which was essentially just because of one pesky little decimal point in its calculations. <laughs> yeah, which essentially means that, right, once invested, right, that this submarine put into it, it, would, it could only move down and never come back up. It's a single dot that cost an extra $9.7 million per meter of the hull, which, of course, has to be now extended to actually get the balance and the space so it actually can resurface. Now, considering they spend about $680 million in 2013 to build each and every sub, uh, and a total of about $3 billion of the whole project, this was hardly a mistake. They could just say, well, no big deal, just the decimal point. We'll hide it under. They had to fix it. It took an additional seven years to repair the submarine, and eventually they rejoined the fleet in May 2021. This was a seemingly small, unknowable mistake of a decimal point that eventually had huge, very enormous, gigantic, noticeable results. Sin, we've talked about sin as the rebellion against the moral order of God or, or simply just rebellion against God. Another way we can uh, talk about that word sin, it literally in Scripture means miss the mark. Like if you're thinking about archery and you're trying to hit the center, like if you're just off a fraction of the center, that is sin. That is missing the mark, even if you're just off by a single decimal point. Romans 3.23 says, For all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. Scripture is saying that we all have missed the mark. We all have made mistakes. Sometimes we think they're small. Sometimes we think they're gigantic. But we have all have made mistakes. Sin deceives us about our sin. It's the nature of what sin does. It distorts our perspective of reality and therefore of all our other sin. So sometimes, this is how can sin distort it. Sometimes we can dis- minimize or think nothing of our sin. It's just a little white lie. No one will notice. It doesn't matter. Or no one said anything. It didn't affect anything. It's just a decimal point. 
that type of deception blinds us from the truth of God. It blinds us about the truth of our sin, and it blinds us about the truth of God. Because it blinds us about the truth of God that he is actually always present with us. That maybe no one else sees our sin, but he sees it. He's present. He is always with us. And it blinds us from the truth that God is all-knowing, that he knows everything. And there's nothing hidden from God. And then sometimes our sin can overwhelm us. We noticed it. Maybe others notice it. But regardless, it can overwhelm us. It, get, it brings us heartache. It brings us guilt. It brings us fear from others or perhaps even from God. Do you know that kind of sin where it just eats at your soul? The guilt for what you have done. The type of, that type of deception of sin blinds us also from the truth of God. It blinds us from his love and his grace towards us. It blinds us from his omnipotence, his, his all power that he can resolve our sin. Is somehow we think our sin inhibits or limits God. That this sin, my sin, I don't know about other sin, but that particular sin, that's too much for God to deal with. That's too much for God to deal with me in, that he can't love me in that way. I've crossed the boundary of his love. Have you been in that sin? Have you been in that guilt? Have you been in that distortion? Sin by its very nature distorts and blinds us from the truth. It blinds us from the gospel truth that our sin is costly. All our sin is costly. It's not just a rounding error. It's not just a decimal point that seemingly unnoticed. Our sin is more costly, the gospel says, than we can ever bear. Even the ones that we think are small, insignificant. Our sin is something we can never fix, never rectify. Sin distorts us because it distorts from the gospel truth that Jesus, Jesus rectifies our sin. That he freely paid the cost and the penalty for our sin. And he does this not because he's out for revenge for our sin, because he loves us. Because he loves you. Let's look more closely at these gospel truths that our sin is costly and Jesus rectifies our sin. John 18, 15 through 17. Simon Peter followed Jesus and so did another disciple. Since that disciple was known to the high priest, he entered with Jesus into the courtyard of the high priest. But Peter stood outside the door. So the other disciple, who was known to the high priest, went out and spoke to the servant girl who kept watch at the door and brought Peter in. The servant girl at the door said to Peter, you also are not one of this man's disciples, are you? And he said, I am not. 
Now, a couple of interesting little things about the uh, beginning of the story is another disciple. I'm like, what? That's just kind of, why isn't, why isn't John tell us who this other disciple is? Now, elsewhere in this gospel, John will refer to himself as the beloved disciple. Tradition in history, the interpretation is that this is also John, the, another disciple. Now, we don't know exactly if it was John, but we have good reasons because everyone thought it was John the soon thereafter, and this is kind of a typical way of uh, a standard way in which an author would write a gospel. They would insert themselves into the story, particularly John, who was there, and that, but not directly refer them themselves. And we also know that John possibly had access or his, family, his father was wealthy enough that he might have known an influence, at least connection, with the high priest or Sanhedrin. So that is how John was able to get in, because there was a family connection. Because you see, John gets inside the courtyard, and Peter does not. So this one way, just really doesn't matter who this other disciple is. Uh, but John makes a big difference. Like, there's another disciple. And then we ask the question, Who's the high priest that they bring him to? This is actually really interesting. Who is the high priest? Technically, Caiaphas is the high priest at this time. But Jesus isn't brought to Caiaphas at the beginning, is he? He's brought to Hannes. Now, Hannes, which is, this is really interesting. It's, it's the male form of the, our word we would say, our name, Hannah. Right? Obvious here, right? But interesting and ironically, you know what that name means? Yahweh is graceful. Now, Hannes in the story is not very graceful at all. The exact opposite of this. Now, Hannes served as the high priest from 6 AD to 15 AD. So the time frame right now is like 30, 33 AD. So he used to serve as the high priest. Now, what's really interesting is that a high priest was established by the Jews. It was a lifetime appointment. So why is he no longer the high priest? Part of the problem is Rome. Rome has uh, interfered with the Jewish way of doing things. So they allowed them to do certain things, but they had control over it. And so they actually removed Hannes and pointed other high priests, which you can see, like, how dare they? They're not real high priests. Now, what's interesting is that the five succeeding high priests that succeeded Hannes were all his sons. And Caiaphas is actually his uh, son-in-law. So it's all in the family. But the, the point is that everyone thought of Hannes as the true high priest, or at least the authority behind the authority. So even though they respected Caiaphas as the high priest, they knew Hannes was the guy and influence. And so essentially, Hannes is the man behind everything, influencing the power brokers of things going in. So this is why... It's just everyone knew that they would bring him to Hannes first. Let's get Hannes' opinion about Jesus. Then you see at the very end, they bring him to Caiaphas. Because technically Caiaphas is the high priest. Now in this kangaroo court, we also know that it's not in the temple, but it's in the private residence of Hannes. We know this for a particular reason, that, that there's actually a servant girl that is at the door. At the, in the temple, there would not be women who would be servants. Only men could be served in the temple. So this is Hannes' private residence. There's a servant girl that greets Peter at the door. 
John has access, we know, and, and it's like, okay, we need to get Peter in. Peter, we're going to sneak Peter in. And so you can understand Peter might be a little cautious about coming in. Why would Peter be cautious about being in the presence of the Sanhedrin and the Pharisees? Well, Peter just harmed one of the temple guards or a Roman soldier, and he just was sorry to it, like, I'm going to wage war against all these people. So you can understand why he might be cautious because he was just seen with Jesus and he took physical action against them. And the servant girl has a very accusatory response. It's not just, uh, were you with them? It's like, she kind of thinks, yeah, you were with him, weren't you? Are, are you not also one of his disciples? This is the, the language that she is kind of using. And of course, Peter makes a quick response. A response that seems reasonable. A response that really he probably thinks is, this is my entry into this courtyard so I actually can observe what's going on with Jesus. So I can follow in here. If he, does, if he replies, yeah, I am, he's in trouble. He's not going to get into this courtyard. This is probably Peter's thought. So he immediately responds, I am not. White little lie. What big is, deal is that? It gets me in. I'm following Jesus. I'm making sure everything is going down. I want to report on this. It's a white little lie. It's harmless. Who's going to know? Who's going to hear it? There's an ongoing contrast. Remember, well, last week we talked about this contrast between the way Jesus behaves and the way Peter behaves, the way Jesus models what it means to surrender to God's, the Father's will, and how Peter models the opposite of that, this, this attack mode, like I'm going to do what I think is right. And once again, we have this wrong. Did you, did you hear Peter's response? I am not. When Jesus is asked, last week we heard the passage when he says, are you Jesus of Nazareth? Does he say, I am not? He says, I am he, I am the great I am. And Peter's response is, I am not. I mean, that, if nothing, those two responses indicates the difference between God, between Jesus, and all of us. I mean, that literally is what God names me. I am, and he is, and everything else in comparison is not. Or as Peter says, you are not a people until you're my people. You do not exist unless you exist in God. I am he, I am not. Let's go to verse 18 through 19. Now the servants and officers made a charcoal fire because it was cold, and they were standing and warming himself. Peter also was with them, standing and warming himself. The high priest then questioned Jesus about his disciples and his teaching. Now everyone in this moment besides Jesus is in the wrong. This is a kangaroo court. The comparison is not just Peter versus Jesus. This is everyone in comparison to Jesus in this moment. This is in a legal courtroom proceedings from the top to beginning, from the, the very presence of when it's happening. It's at night. Where it's happening? At his private residency. Not all are allowed to, to see or participate in this. It's not even the right high priest. And this is where the rub comes. Hananias, I'm sorry, Hannes questions Jesus. Now, when we read this, like, what's the big deal? It's a courtroom. You question, right? This is actually violation of any courtroom proceeding. 
And we kind of have this courtroom proceeding, this kind of rule in our, a defendant doesn't have to testify against themselves. In fact, a defendant at that time would never testify against themselves. You would never ask the defendant any questions. In order to convict someone, you had to bring witnesses and you would ask the witnesses, what happened? Who is this person? What has he said? But Hannes doesn't do that. He turns and he asks Jesus, who are your disciples? What's your theology? Who, who's following you? And what do you believe? What's your teaching? You can begin to see why Peter was a little bit nervous about being in this space. Because the first, one of the first questions that Hannes asked is, who else is with you? Jesus' response, 20 through 21. Jesus answered him, I have spoken openly to the world. I have always taught in synagogues and in the temple where all Jews come together. I have said nothing in secret. Why do you ask me? Ask those that you have heard that what I said. They know what I said. First thing I want you to really pay attention is Jesus doesn't respond to the first question of Hannah's. He doesn't even talk about his disciples. This really shouldn't surprise us because even when he was arrested, he said, don't arrest them. Right? This is, this is Jesus' prophecy and prediction that the disciples have a, there's a plan and purpose for them after I die and after I'm resurrected. You are, you are not touching them. This is God's sovereign will, and this is his prediction in John 18, 9. This was to fill the word they have spoken of those whom you gave me, I have lost not one. In, in some ways, just this, that thought alone should put you at ease from your sin. That thought alone should put you at ease from your anxiety that you actually belong to Jesus and your sin will not lose your grip or not lose his grip on you. Now here's some possible responses for Jesus that could have had to the high priest. He could tell them about his teaching. He actually could have responded and said, okay, let me tell you what I've been teaching and give him the rundown. He could speak it out again. Or he could lie about it like Peter did. What teaching? I didn't teach anything. Or just deny it. But that's not what Jesus does. What does Jesus do in this moment? He highlights the sin of the process in which is going on right now. In fact, he points out the sin of what is happening in this moment, this kangaroo you're not supposed, to, why do you ask me? When we read that, we think, yeah, why don't we ask me? Because, right, why don't you ask other people? Why, why, do, you have to, why do I have to tell it? I've already said it to you. You shouldn't know it. Jesus asked that question, why do you ask me? Because he knows they're not supposed to ask him. Everyone knows they're not supposed to ask him. And so he points out the sin in their process. You're not supposed to ask me that question, Hannes. Why do you ask me? And the answer is, because Hannes is a sinner. Because Hannes has other motives. And then he, re he responds like, I have spoken clearly. I have not, what I say in private and what I say in public, there's no difference. I do not hide this. In fact, many in that room would know exactly what Jesus has said because he's taught it in the temple in their presence. He's taught it in synagogues as he's traveled around. 
There's no question. This is why they've actually gone to arrest him, because they know exactly why. Why don't they have witnesses to testify against him? Why don't they actually have a proper proceeding? Jesus, just ask anyone. Bring yourself as a witness. Go ahead. Bring in this trial. Verses 22 to 24. When he had said these things, one of the officers standing by struck Jesus with his hand, saying, Is that how you answer the high priest? Just pause for a second. Should Jesus even answer the high priest? He shouldn't have even answered. He shouldn't have even questioned. Jesus answered, If what I said is wrong, bear witness about the wrong. But if what I said is right, why do you strike me? Hannes then sent him bound to Caiaphas, the high priest. I just... Jesus doubles down on this pointing out of sin. They slap him because he asked them, why do you ask me? You're not supposed to ask me. What's wrong with you? They slap him, and Jesus doubles down. Why don't you bear, if, if I, what I said, just said was wrong, why don't you bear witness what I said is wrong? Why don't you bear witness that actually talking to the high priest that you should not talk to me, you should not ask me those questions because that's not how these proceedings go. He just doubles down at pointing out the process and their sin and their corruption. Jesus stands up in this moment. He doesn't wilt and he doesn't deny anything about himself, but he keep pushes the point. You're all sinners. All your hearts are against me. There's no response to Jesus doubling down. And it's just, it could just be like, it's almost, oh, it's almost like Pilate washing his hands, like, get him out. Get him out, send him to Bacchus. Let's move on from these proceedings. And then the story moved back, moves back to Peter, verses 25 to 27. Now Simon Peter was standing and warming himself. So they said to him, you also, are not one of, are you, you also are not one of his disciples, are you? He denied it and said, I am not. One of the servants of the high priest, a relative of a man whose ear Peter had cut off, asked, did I not see you in the garden with him? Peter again denied it. And at once, a rooster crowed. Now what we know about Peter is that Peter thought he was Jesus' ride or die. Like he was going to be with Jesus to the end. That he would die for Jesus. In John 13, 37 through 38, Peter said to Jesus, Lord, why can I not follow you now? I will lay down my life for you. And Jesus answered, will you lay down your life for me? Truly, truly, I say to you, the rooster will not crow to have denied me three times. Now, the other Gospels that account this story, they put the emphasis on the story on the increasing, increasing harshness in which Peter denies Jesus. And like the second denial, he takes a vow. I swear to God, I have never known this man. And then the last denial in the other Gospels, he actually swears out loud so vehemently, I do not know God. Here, there is not this increasing harshness in his denials. Because the emphasis here is not that John is putting on this increasing uh, sin in which Peter is doing. Not on the severity of the one denial is worse than the other. But the denial is done three times. Now, there's not one denial that is worse. I mean, which one would be worse? 
Could you make that comparison? Which denial of your Lord and Savior of God Almighty would be worse in your life? The one you're more harsh at? The initial one? They're all the same. They are all the same. The, the point is the comparison to Jesus' response, how he's portraying himself versus Peter, versus everyone else, how they're behaving. Jesus affirms who he is. Peter denies who he is. It's this, it's this comparison with everyone of the holiness of God versus the sin of all people. The next time we see G, uh, Peter is after the resurrection. And in John, after the resurrection, the next time we see Peter, he gets, to, he gets to the, into the upper room, and then he's like, I'm going fishing. This resurrection thing, he's not in his tomb. It's too much for me to handle. I'm going to revert back, which I haven't done in three years, and go back to my old profession, and I'm going fishing. We can just imagine the heartache, the guilt that Peter is living in. We can imagine it because we often live in this guilt of the sin that we commit against God or against others, the way we deny him in our lives. And Peter denied Jesus. We can imagine his fear of God, fear of retribution, fear of God's anger, we can imagine because we think and have these same emotions in our life. When we sin, when we miss the mark, when we fail Jesus. You see, the bottom line is that our sin deceives us about our sin. At times we think our sin is insignificant or it doesn't matter or it's small enough. And our sin deceives us about God, who God is. Our sin is too great at times, we feel. Our sin is too big. It's too severe or so much worse than everyone else's. It's unforgivable. It's unredeemable. I'm not worthy of God's love. Those thoughts run through your mind ever? Both of those are sin distortions. Both of those thoughts are just distortion of sin in your life. For us, the, the fundamental question I want us to ask today in these moments that sin is distorting us about the truth of our own sin and about the truth of who God is, in your heartache, in your guilt, in your fear, this is the question I want you to ask. Who is God when you sin? Or who do you think God is when you sin? Is God wanting to, is sneaking around the corner to catch you? Is he waiting to punish you? Is God revengeful when you sin? Does God's view of you ebb and flow depending on your behavior towards him. Sometimes we live in the fear and we ask these questions, what if I'm not good enough? 
what if I fail Jesus? Who is God then? Who is God when I sin? Sin by its very nature distorts and blinds us from the very truth. It blinds us from the truth that our sin is costly. It's more costly than you and I can bear. Our sin is something that we can never rectify. You can't fix it. And the gospel truth that Jesus rectifies our sin. This is, this is the point. Peter, like all of us, sins horribly. Denying your Lord and Savior. In the comparison of God and His holiness, look at all sin is contemptible. But God is not revolts and put back from our sin. God doesn't like see your sin like, ooh, whoa, can't, can't handle that. That's too much. I mean, that sin was okay, but that one, that's too much for me to deal with. I think sometimes that's how we think God is. God's love for you isn't based on your sinfulness or your holiness. God's love is not based on how much you do for him or how much you don't. Your works or lack of works. God's love for you is based on himself. It's not based on you at all. God's love for you is who he is. It's always who he is. It doesn't waffle, it doesn't change, it doesn't ebb and flow. It's that God is more loving in some moments for you and then others less so. It doesn't move from God's loving and then wrathful to me. No, God always loves you. Who is God when you sin? He is always the same. He was, he was the same as if you don't sin, as if there's a moment in which you're not sinning, which is a lie. He's always who he is. He is the same God that always loves you. John 3, 16 through 17. I mean, Jesus tries to make this clear at the very beginning. For God so loved the world, all of creation, that he gave his only son, that whoever believes in him should not perish, but have eternal life. For God did not send his son in the world to condemn the world, but in order the world might be saved through him. This is the point. You, me, Peter, we fail Jesus. And yet, God still loves us. He loves us so much. He loves us so much in that truth that he sent his son to rectify our sin, to take on the penalty and the wrath that you and I deserve. That's how much he loves us. What if I failed Jesus, though? Here's the thing. You will. You have. God will not change. His love for you will never change. Who is God when you sin? He is the Father that sent His only Son to die for you. Who is God when you sin? 
He is Jesus that freely went to the cross to pay the penalty of your sin. Who is God when you sin? He is the one that has decided to reside in you, to give you his Holy Spirit, to convict you of your sin, to give you proper perspective on your sin, to remove that sin distortion in your life, and to move you away from sin. You see, Peter unlike us, at this moment of his denial, he didn't have the Holy Spirit. You and I can have, have the Holy Spirit in us. Who is God when you sin? He is the God that loves you, that adores you, that calls you beloved, and he has always loved you. There's not been a moment of your existence and there will never be a moment of your existence in which God will not love you. He is the God that has already paid, past tense, the penalty for your sin. Just like the Spanish sub, mistakes are easily made in our life, and everyone is costly. But the all-knowing, ever-present, all-powerful God still loves you. And this is the message in which the gospel is saying. He has rectified all your sins. It, it doesn't give us permission to sin. That's not, that's not the purpose of the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit has begun to rectify that in us. This God who is all-powerful, all-knowing, ever-present, is all-loving. Will you live in that grace? Will you live in that love? And will you live in that truth today? And remember it tomorrow? And can you apply it to your past? Which may hold this grip of guilt in your life. Live in the truth, the gospel truth, that your sin is costly. But Jesus has rectified that sin because God loves you. Let's pray. Glorious and loving God, it is hard to live in that truth. It's hard to remember this truth. It's so, it's so easy to think about our relationship with you in, in one dimension, in, in one way, of, in our love and our failings towards you. Let our, remove the distortion of our sin and how we perceive and understand and know you and know the truth of our existence and the truth of your love for us. Remove the, the distortion of our of sin as sometimes how we minimize it. But let us not stay in that guilt, Lord, but let us move to that understanding of your love, what you've done to rectify us. There is no guilt. It was hard to live in that truth, Lord. 
I pray for myself and for this congregation and our community that they may know this truth and be reminded of it throughout this day, throughout tomorrow, and may we apply it to our past, Lord. Let us know that you are a God that never changes. Merciful God, thank you. We love you. We love you. Help us in our love for you today. We pray this in Jesus' name. And all God's people said, amen.